Hey there, it's Jay again. You'll be hearing a bit more of me over the next few weeks because the Darts and Letters team are taking it easy for a short while. We're still making new stuff, like this episode, but we're also streamlining a few things so that we could spend more time outside and with our friends and family over the summer. This show does take a ton of work to put out weekly, and we've been doing it without ever being able to be in the same room, for obvious reasons. So we still have loads of great stuff coming out, It'll just be produced in a slightly simpler way until September. We also really need to give Gordon a break. As well as hosting this show, he teaches at university and is doing a PhD. So he's kicking around in the background and doing some interviews, but I'll be on air a bit more as well. From Sighted Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. Darts and Letters is a show about ideas, about populism, and the politics of academia. The Ivy League exists to be elitist. Students go to these schools in part because they want to be seen as better than other students. When you graduate from Harvard or Yale, you know that that one name on your resume is going to get you job interviews. More than that, you're networking while you're there. Your classmates might be future legislators or industry leaders. And it's a kind of elitism that lots of people find easier to accept because, rightly or wrongly, it kind of feels like you've earned the right to be seen as better by getting into these institutions. Honestly, I've got to admit, I was a little shocked when I moved to Canada. Not even the US, Canada. And I was looking for work and people still asked me about my degree. I did not go to an elite university and it had been nearly a decade since I graduated. I rarely think about my Bachelor of Science in Music Technology from Huddersfield University. My 10 years of working in journalism and radio felt far more relevant. But I was still asked, and if you believe in meritocracy and you believe these universities are entirely meritocratic, then that might not be a problem to you. But the process of getting into the Ivy League is not meritocratic. Take Harvard. Over half of students there come from families whose income puts them in the top 10% of earners. The lowest 20% make up less than one in a hundred of students there. Your background makes a big difference to the opportunities that you have to put your best foot forward in your application. So socioeconomic diversity is an issue at Harvard, which inevitably means racial diversity is an issue at Harvard. Black people are underrepresented in students and in faculty. And that's really not surprising to me, because racism is the oldest and perhaps ugliest form of elitism, and these institutions have always wanted to be elitist, and they still do today. Harvard could actually afford to get rid of tuition fees altogether with their huge endowment, they just don't. So this creates a tension, because these universities also want to be seen as progressive. They want to be above racism, elevated to a place of learning in its purest form. 234 years after Harvard was founded, Richard Theodore Greener graduated. He was the first black person to ever graduate from Harvard. That was in 1870. 
But it wasn't until the desegregation and affirmative action era of the 1960s that we really started to see any measurable number of black students in the Ivy League. And it's those students that we're talking about today. Stephen Bradley is Professor of African American Studies at Loyola Marymount University in LA, and he wrote a book called Upending the Ivory Tower, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Ivy League. It's about how early black students fought and changed these elite institutions. Those students who got in could have very well tried to keep their heads low and not say anything about the fact that they were so few, but after and during the civil rights movement heading into the black power movement these black students were able to use their voices to increase the numbers of african americans on campus so gordon spoke to him about that history and about the tensions of doing something so anti-elitist within a fundamentally elitist organization that's coming up after the break I know we said we're taking it easy for now, but we do still need your support. I also said this show takes a ton of work, and it really does. We wouldn't find these awesome scholars and activists without our researchers and producers. We can't tell their stories without money to do it. So if you've got a few dollars to spare, go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters, and hopefully we get to keep making the show. Patrons get the show a day early, and when enough people sign up, we're going to start putting extra content on there too. If you don't have anything to spare, that's fine. But it does help if you follow us on Twitter and Instagram or just share the show with your friends. The more people who hear the show, the more sustainable it is. So yeah, patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. I was really caught by your book. I mean, caught off guard to a certain extent and excited by that because it, it puts two things together that I don't normally put together, which is Black Power and the Ivy League. And when I think of the Ivy League, I think of an elite, exclusive, white place where leaders and captains of industry are, are made. How and why did you come to this question of the Ivy League and Black Power? Yeah, no, good question. I'm so glad that you were caught off guard a little bit. I mean, your your inclination is correct. It was designed for a certain kind of white demographic. And uh, some argue fairly cogently that, that it remains that way. But there was a period where, in my mind, just the smallest minority of people was able to influence these these institutions that had been around since before there was a United States of America, I was fascinated with the idea that so few could do so much to, to alter the course in some ways of these institutions. And so what drew me to it was the idea that these particularly black students and early professors and, and staff members had to almost welcome themselves to these spaces. So the idea was you keep education from black people and, you know, Black people aren't able to get ahead because of credentialing and all of that sort of thing. What happens to the group of Black people that can make it in, that are fully qualified by any measurement, fully qualified to make it in and to do uh, the same kind of things that their 
uh, non-black peers can do. How do they fare in these situations? The other question that I had early on was, historians, we write a lot of history about poor black people. So think about the civil rights history that we read. It's oftentimes about sharecroppers. It's oftentimes about poverty-stricken people and that sort of thing. I was wondering, do, do the most privileged among us have any struggles and what do their struggles look like? So the people who can go to an Ivy League institution, is it that everything will be great because, you know, maybe they had parents who went to college before them or, or something along those lines? But, you know, and what I found in the end is that Black people struggle wherever Black people are. And so it doesn't matter the institution. It doesn't matter the venue. That's the name of the game. That's that's really interesting. Just just by way of of getting us kind of all on the same page historically and and where exactly and what exactly we're talking about. Your book, I mean, roughly looks at sort of the post-war period to 1975. Is that right? I mean, you could you could just sort of like give me a, a sense of the t- historical uh, time scale and and why. Right, right, right. And so I wanted to focus on the period of, of, of what some historians call desegregation. So there was a strong desegregation campaign underway in the World War II, post-World War II period through what we know to be is the rise of affirmative action. And so through the 70s. And so you could also pin it also with uh, co-education in a sense. I think in the early 70s period, you, you got to see women enrolling uh, and graduating from these elite institutions in the Ivy League. Mm-hmm. And what about the sort of question of scale? I know, you know, there were African-Americans in the Ivy League before these dates, not many. What are some of this kind of like statistics in terms of proportion before the war and then afterwards, how does it change? Yeah, good question. And so, you know, before, really you have to think about it before, uh, before I would say 1965, really. But before that period, it was, it was handfuls, literally handfuls of, of African-Americans who were able to attend these institutions. And some, some didn't get to attend at all until World War II. So the first black Black American person to graduate from an Ivy League institution was maybe 1828, but really there were quotas, there were all kinds of things to prevent, you know, a higher number of enrollment into these institutions. After World War II, it became difficult just to to engage in these kind of quotas the same way. You can't go off and fight a war on behalf of a race of people that is that you're going off to free a race of people from oppression and then come home and say, well, okay, we're still trying to marginalize a race of people. It it just doesn't jive as well. And I think there was a more intense spotlight with the rise of the modern civil rights movement. And so as people are seeing the civil rights movement unfurl, particularly in the South, many of these white students at these institutions are, are, are trying to help are sympathetic and, and that sort of thing. But also, it's difficult to be in a city like Philadelphia or New York and 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 continue to deny African-Americans the opportunity to either enroll or work at these institutions while there's a Black freedom movement exploding outside of the walls. What is the, pr- the pressure exactly? Is there pressure that 
black act in terms of increasing enrollment and admissions is this pressure coming from the civil rights movement black activists directly on these elite institutions are these elite institutions following from government edicts what ultimately forces them to open the door at least a crack yeah great question i think all of those so in the case of say princeton university which didn't admit black students at least knowingly until world war ii it was world war ii that actually prompted the enrollment of you know african-american students there the navy needed officers black officers and so um through the the v12 program uh black students were able to attend princeton university at the same time the state had a kind of a desegregation law that had had it had eventually been passed and so there was pressure outside pressure in that way um there were always there had always been some sorts of activist pressure on these institutions wb du bois would write to these institutions to find out how many he called them negroes were enrolled in the school and uh why so few and and that sort of thing but one of the things that happened is is once you got um, to the 1960s or so, you had a critical mass of Black alumni who would also place pressure on these institutions to enroll more African-American students. And the, uh, really, this is the striking part of the story is those students who got in could have very well tried to keep their heads low and not say anything about the fact that they were so few. But after and during the civil rights movement, heading into the black power movement, these black students were able to use their voices to increase the numbers of African-Americans on campus. And it worked especially well because here was a group of people who, who thought they were doing a favor by desegregating, that is allowing a few black students to come in. But these liberal white administrators, administrators had to be pushed further to think about ways of opening these institutions that have been so closed to non-WASP students in the past. What was it like? I know your your book has stories, some of, some of which are very harrowing. You interview people. I mean, what are some of the, the stories that stand out for you in terms of some of the early African-American students at these Ivies? What, what was their experience like? Mm. Good question again. I think for me, part of the research was tearful. I think about some of the heroes that that we have. One of my personal heroes was a man by the name of John Hope Franklin. He was incredibly smart. John Hope Franklin, you know, the author from Slavery to Freedom. And, you know, he had gone on to Harvard to pursue his uh, PhD. And he just talked about how First of all, Cambridge was was one of the most unwelcoming spaces that he had been to. But but he also talked about how in his courses, the professor would tell darky jokes and this sort of thing that here he was incredibly talented and intelligent, but he'd have to deal with that. I, you know, that was an early period. I'm talking about in the 1920s. That was a regular and par for the course. I think I I think about Jay Saunders Redding who at Brown University was one of maybe two or three black students on campus and how they, they never tried to be seen together because they didn't want anybody to think that they were conspiring 
no i mean just this is this is like mental torture in some ways so when they when they did get together they would draw the blinds and and that sort of thing to make sure you know that nobody saw them and one of the students dropped out and committed suicide i'm just torn up by these these stories of these early early pioneers is what i call them and it didn't stop there you know later on down the road just this happens today you know just black students regularly being asked for their credentials on campus if they're on scholarship regularly being asked to prove themselves in many ways being confused for other black students of course for the other three black students they have and and that sort of thing black women once on campus had had a tremendously tough time in dormitories you know that is because black people and white people have been separated for so long. I'm speaking about Cornell University, which was one of the earliest, one of the earliest to, you know, to desegregate. It was, it was a tough play because, you know, white women were like, uh, what are you doing to your hair? And why does it smell that way when you do your hair? And, and this sort of thing. And it, it's just creepy a little bit. Not because, not because, you know, some of it might've been, you know, in animus, but some of it might've been just, you know, the, the races have been separated for so long that, that it made it difficult once coming together. And so, you know, there were all kinds of terrible stories like this uh, out at Princeton University. A student talked about being on the way to an exam and walking underneath one of the eating clubs or nearby an eating club and having urine uh, poured on, on, on him. I can't imagine I'm going to take a physics test or whatever it is. And, and I have to deal with this. Not only do I have to try to make A's, but I have to worry about urine bombs. I have to worry about somebody asking me if I belong on campus. I have to worry about somebody thinking that I can't afford to be on campus or that I shouldn't be. All of those things make for students who have to be soldiers in a sense. Jeez. I'm curious about how the people especially those of lower socioeconomic status that that can't end up at these Ivy League institutions, how they then see these African-Americans at elite institutions. You know, in, in the book you write about the people in the institutions feeling a sense of guilt. And I can imagine a sense of also suspicion and even contempt potentially for the kind of bourgeois a black activist, like what, what was the, the African-American community generally, what was their perception of these student activists at these elite white spaces? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it varied. I think in some ways it's, it's as, as life is in any other part of society. That is those who are able to go to the most elite spaces sometimes are the people who who have to feel the ire of, you know, of the proletariat of, you know, of the lower classes who, who may not be able to go to these institutions at all. And so for some black people who were literally struggling on the streets every day, the idea that some, some black young people could go to these schools was not necessarily a, a victory in their mind because they were still, you know, starving and scratching and struggling. However, Part of the black tradition is to support education uh, from the times that black people were stealing books during slavery to the times when they created schools right after slavery ended to, you know, to, to moving forward. So 
So it played differently. I think one of the things that I write about in the book is something called double marginalization. That is the idea that Black students who could attend these Ivy League institutions faced a certain kind of marginalization because of their race. Uh, when they got on campus, they wouldn't be able to always join the Glee Club or the law review or whatever it was. They wouldn't be able to do all of these things. So they were marginalized in that way. But also there was marginalization. We, we forget that during this period, most Americans didn't attend college or university. And so it was, it was you know, an elite group of people who got the chance to do that. And so in these communities, particularly in these poverty-stricken communities, you know, there was a distance sometimes between those who could attend and those who couldn't. And these are all peers. And for Black people who could attend, uh, this was this was troublesome. It was a sense of marginalization. So uh, some of the things that they did uh, was to try to fit in. Like they come home and they'd make sure to, you know, to continue talking the way that people on the block talk. They, they'd make sure to, to, to show the people on the block that they were still down. Uh, Eric Holder talks about this. When he went back to Queens, he, he wanted to make sure that he was still one of the boys. You know, John Edgar Weidman talks about going back to, I think, Pittsburgh and, and the same kind of thing. And so this is an additional burden. You have to present yourself in many different ways to many different groups, and it gets to be tiresome. And so that's that's not altogether easy. So, so the Black community supported, in many ways, Black students at these places. So I, I write about Columbia University and how people from Harlem brought them food. It, it, in Philadelphia, at Penn, people uh, did the same thing, the Black community. And Cornell, they housed these Black students. It, Brown, when students decided to do a walkout, the, you know, the local Black Baptist church allowed them to stay there. So these are all ways that the community was supporting. But as I write in the book, uh, there was an interesting, I guess you could say, poem or song in Ebony magazine. It was a letter to my brothers at, at Dartmouth, where they talked about you up there trying to act rational, trying to negotiate with the man. Meanwhile, people are dealing with drugs and, and death on the street. And so don't forget, that we're here and that the work that you're doing at those institutions should be to help the people on the block. How did they, did they do that? How did they reconcile sort of being removed from the block? Much of this had to do with intentionality. So, so that was one of the most beautiful parts about the rise of the black freedom movement of the 1960s. People like Stokely Carmichael and H. Rat Brown, who were students themselves at one point, they explained to black students and they toured around campuses everywhere. Now that's remarkable to see how much they got around all over the United States and, and other places. And they would tell these students that if you're out here protesting so that you could eat better yourself, then you deserve to starve. But if you're out here protesting so that we could all eat better, if you're activating for that purpose, then then you're part of you're part of the movement, the larger movement. And so I think students took that to heart. And so they looked for ways to be in community with the neighboring residents. And so in places like Cambridge, they wanted to meet up with Roxbury residents to find out what they needed. The same was true of Columbia students in Harlem and students all over. Students at Princeton were trying to, to work on tutoring programs with young people in Trenton. 
So the idea was to be in community and to to use whatever talents you could to help those who may or may not ever step foot on an Ivy League campus. How did they push the institutions to be better? There's so many things they push for, but maybe to begin, I mean, how do they push for admissions um, and and to increase the the, the share of African Americans that that are invited to these institutions? Yeah, here again. This isn't always the most sexy part, but I think it's one of the most important parts is students would work with administrators. They'd have crazy meetings all the time with administrators to try to figure out ways to have more African-Americans, higher African-American student enrollment. And, And they tried it you know, sometimes in in nice ways, sometimes it became more militant. So sometimes they had to to do sit-ins in the admissions office or take over the the admissions office and not let anybody in, which was a situation that actually occurred at Columbia University to prevent, prevent the acceptance letters from going out. This is important because you know, all these schools are all eight of these Ivy League institutions are competing against each other. And so so by delaying an acceptance notice, we could make a difference with people. So but they were doing this with the idea that you could increase the number of African-Americans. So out at Brown and and Pembroke College, um, African-American women were of the mind that, that Black women should make up at least the percentage of Black people in the United States at the time, which was about 11%. And they tried talking to administrators. They tried meeting with administrators. They tried writing to administrators. And finally, they decided what we're going to do is we're going to give administrators the opportunity to have time to think about things by by literally boycotting the school. And they walked off campus and and brought with them the African-American men who were part of the Afro-American society. And so, so that was something that they pushed, uh, pushed for. One of the things that was important, and I mentioned that particular struggle because those African-American women wanted to be very nuanced about black admissions. They wanted, they said, we don't just want black women who had attended these, these boarding schools and day schools. We want students to come from Roxbury. We want students to come from Harlem and from, and from uh, Newark and all these different places. We want students who would be overlooked. And so what these students were able to do, and this is super and super important, like hugely impactful, is they were able to, to widen the pool of applicants for these Ivy League institutions. During the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the grand majority of students who came who came to Ivy League institutions uh, had attended all of those Grotons and you know, Exeters and St. Phillips Academy and all, all those different places that were incredibly exclusive and might have let in one or two black students at a time. And so they pushed these institutions to think about different kinds of high schools where students might have excelled, but just no officers had ever thought of doing that. And it was difficult for some admissions officers because this is the Ivy League. Not many people, you know, they recruit so few students. They don't go out recruiting, trying to sell themselves uh, to, to students. They are, this is the Ivy League. The, the schools sell themselves. So they go out to, to, to handpick a few students. And so, so I think that this is important. That's a really fascinating tension 
one of the things you you write in the book that really stood out for me that's relevant to this, I'll just kind of quote it here. In response to the arrival and agitation of young Black leaders, Ivy institutions worked to respond to their separate emergent needs, but also in ways banded together to envision outcomes that could satisfy protesting students and the institution's desires to remain elite. Now, when I read that, I was like, well, this is what I don't like about the Ivies. They're elite educational hierarchies. So these students, what, what kind of bargain do they make around that elite status? And you know, that example you brought up of just recruiting from untraditional universities, that in and of itself, I could see that being as like, well, we're an elite institution. We don't want to, you know, attract these kinds of people. So how do they approach the university's desire to remain elite? I think part of it had to do with the fact that by the mid-1960s and going into the early 1970s, Black people on these campuses took pride in the fact that they weren't, they weren't accommodating the culture of these institutions. And so they stated plainly, like, these black men who started the first black studies program in the Ivy League at Yale, one of them made the point like, I, I'll never be a Yale man. I'll never be a Yale man. And so why would I try to be a Yale man? So for, for, for these people who were newcomers to the institution, rather than, than trying to fit in, they decided that they would be authentically black and not Negro, but black. And that, I think, was a turning point in some ways. That allowed them to, to push for things that maybe, maybe people couldn't push for in an earlier period. So they pushed for their own spaces. So we need a Black culture center. Like we need a Black house. Uh, all of those kinds of things. To push against the most sacred things. So it's elite to be able to, to trace one's family back to French origins and things like that. For them, they said, well, I don't understand like why we can't learn Swahili if we have to learn, you know, all sorts of different languages and things like that. That's not traditional. And that's 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 by no means elite uh, by the standards of the WASP uh, old guard. Uh, and so so in that way, they were changing things. The other part of it was there were tensions. I don't want to make it seem as though all of the black students got along, all of the black students. There, were a there was a certain kind of tension between those black students who came from families that were, in, say, uh, uh, rich but well-to-do, and those who were first-generation college students. So at a place like Dartmouth College, they literally recruited from the, from the vice lords uh, of Chicago. And many of the vice lords who went to, to Dartmouth to eventually matriculate as college students, you know, for them, this was an incredible culture shock. But it was also a culture shock for some of the Black students who had not been exposed to gang life and things like that. So that was, that was etching away at, at this kind of elitism of, of what people thought of as, as an Ivy League student. And so I thought that was, that was, that was crucial. I think uh, at Cornell University, when they had a demonstration to take down all of the books on the shelves to show that, that, that look, you, this is supposed to be a place where we take up universal knowledge and we can't find any books by Black authors on these shelves. And so that's, that just 
you know, that's so anathema. That's so, that's oppositional to the idea of respecting the learned knowledge of these institutions. And so uh, they, they stood up in the face of that kind of elitism. A story that I heard recently on a podcast, it was Richard Wolff, I believe, The Economist. I think he was telling, relaying a story of being in the freshman class at, at Harvard. And he said something to the effect of that the speaker, the chancellor, president, whoever, said in this auditorium assembly, look to your right, now look to your left. One of those two people is is going to be a uh, political leader, politician, community leader. The other one is going to be a, a titan, a captain of industry. Like The message was that you are here t- to rule. And I'm curious about how these young African-American students, black radicals, they go into that space that has that orientation and still has that orientation to a large extent. Do they see themselves as wanting to be a black elite? Or do they see themselves as wanting to challenge that kind of elitism and hierarchical thinking? Very good. Very good. Yeah. I think there was a certain tension I think many of the students that I studied always wanted to challenge that elitism. They wanted to challenge that elitism by, by, you know, the work that they did when they graduated. And so many stayed with community and went on to take up careers that would help Black people find access in various spaces. Now, look, this is the Ivy League. So, you know, when you graduate from one of these institutions, you can go to Chase Manhattan, you can go to to all these different, you know, Fortune 50 companies and that sort of thing. And some did, many did. But the orientation was that we're doing it for Black people. And so it became, it became a, a, a real tough situation. So even Michelle Obama, like her, you know, her thesis was about, our, you know, are Black people who graduate from Princeton still helping the cause, essentially? And it was on the minds of these young people because here again, they have to face the Black people who are on the block where they came, came from. They, they have to deal with their family members who were not as well off or privileged enough to go to these, these institutions. I would argue they also we're coming from a communal, not individualistic, but communal kind of living situation uh, where, where the idea was that you're doing this for something larger than, than yourself. We don't want you to go off and make good just for yourself, but we're, we're investing in you so that you can come back and make good for the community. And so I think that was a large part of the ethos at the time. And especially, especially as people were hearkening back to to values of people that had come from people and cultures that had come from the continent of Africa. One of the things that, that's been threaded throughout the, our conversation, but we haven't discussed explicitly very much, is the Black Studies, the push, which really is a, is a big part of your book. The first is at Yale, right? Correct. Can you tell me a little bit about Black Studies, what the first department was like, and, and who pushed for it? This is one of the most enduring aspects, in my mind, of Black power in general, uh, this idea of Black studies, that any reputable university in the United States or college has a Black studies program at this point. Like, you, you can't go without a unit. 
So this was the effort of black students. And, and, and it should also be noted that there was no other discipline or field of study before this that students had actually protested for. So nobody protested for a, for a geophysics, you know, program or something like that. Nobody was like, you know, give me my damn geophysics. That wasn't it. And so black studies was one of those things. I think there was a certain kind of audacity uh, in, in students to think that they could disrupt, and I love this, disrupt the inculcation of white supremacy um, that was occurring on these campuses, that, that they could confront that with black studies. And so at Yale, uh, this was a group of young men who took up the project. Uh, one of the major leaders was a man by the name, a young man by the name of Armstead Robinson. Armstead Robinson was an historian and he had worked with his advisors who happened to be white and that sort of thing. But he largely, along with several of his classmates or well, schoolmates, black schoolmates, they did all of the research for the black studies program. That is, they would find out which professors were where in the United States. They would find out what archives are available, uh, what could what could be acquired. Now, this is the funny part about Ivy League institutions. It, it, they can acquire anything they want because of the resources they have. So now we think about the Beinecke Library at Yale, which contains, you know, so many papers that are dear to the Black experience. That was the effort of these Black students who were pushing for a Black Studies program. And they were pushing against liberals too, though. So some of the white liberals who had marched with King and and that sort of thing, they, they didn't want a Black Studies program. They thought that if it's important enough, it should be in the Department of History or in, in English. So here these students were confronting professors who normally would have said, yes, we're for the Black people and, and that sort of thing. But they were confronting these liberals uh, to, to move beyond liberalism to a, a new radical imagination about knowledge itself. And so that was that came at great sacrifice for some students. This Armstead Robinson that I was referring to had to actually stay an additional year um, to see Black Studies through. The work that Black students did at Harvard University was, was quite harrowing, as you described earlier. The idea that they would be, you know, protesting along with SDS, um, you know, for this Black Studies department. And they early on thought about a graduate program in the department and these kinds of things like that, that to me was important, but, but, but they went even a step further. That is to, to ensure that they could hire and sit on tenure uh, committees for these faculty members that would come along. And that was unheard of. Just, I mean, the students did, the students did this. It uh, just, you can't imagine how unheard of this is. Uh, at these kinds of institutions. These departments have made such enormous impact today. Their legacy, the, the work that they do, clearly is informing the movement for Black Lives. We just did an episode also about critical race theory and all the contestation around it. Not to brush over too much history, but how do you think that the establishment of these departments contributes to today's today's politics? Well, if I could be frank for a quick second, when when George Floyd dies, when when Trayvon Martin dies, when Michael Brown dies, 
all of a sudden institutions really care for the black studies unit and all of a sudden they become relevant and the stuff that we've been saying over coffee breaks and lunches for the you know for the last 60 years all of a sudden is relevant and so so in that way it provides a truth-telling unit on campus that is a, a unit that the that allows for a certain kind of theory and praxis that's not in in all units on campus. And so institutions have benefited that way from relationships between Black Studies Department and community. And so like people forget there are many, many more poor people, many more members of the underclass than there are people who are going to college and university. And so what would happen if the underclass and the, the working class decided that that colleges and universities are taking up too much space or taking up too much resources and air and water. And so we're going to use these things. So those relationships become more and more uh, important and institutions take advantage of those. I think what we're seeing, what we're seeing is in some ways the leveling of knowledge. That is that Black scholars, Black scholarship, understanding of the Black experience is coming to the fore in hopes that these buildings don't have to get burned, that the glass in the buildings don't have to get broken out, in hopes that that now all these institutions want to be anti-racist and, and all of that sort of thing. Well, one of the ways you can start is by paying attention to what the faculty and students in Black Studies, what they're doing and what they need. And so that's, I think, something that got its start, you know, 50, 60 years ago that that is rolling these days. And so I'm hoping that all of these anti-racist initiatives mean that the, there'll be increasing, increasing the number of African-American faculty members, increasing the resources for African-American students and creating spaces for Black students to be their authentic selves. What do you think that, in your experience, you know, the students that you have and and your sense of what the activism is like today, what do you think that this crop of activists could learn from the people that you write about in your book? First things first is got to study, got to study. Like one of the things that that the students that I write about were very good about is understanding the systems within you know, within which they were working. So like the PowerPoints, like who, you know, what are the inflection points on power on campus? Like that was, that was very bright. Like the other part of it is, I think we lionize and glorify protests, but we forget about all of the boring ass meetings that people went to beforehand. Like there's a lead up to protest, like protest and activism in terms of like demonstrations, like things had to have gone wrong well before then. And so much of what young people want, they may be able to get by asking the right people, by, you know, putting, applying pressure in the right kind of ways. If that doesn't work, then you, you escalate from there and escalate from there. So when I talk to young people, I tell them there are tree shakers and jelly makers. Like there are some people who are going to be able to, take over campus buildings and to confront authority in very loud and disruptive ways. But then you also need people to sit on the boring curriculum committee. You need people to do that part as well and to be around to make sure that these changes that you're, you know, disrupting, you know, demonstrating for 
uh, that they get implemented. And then the final thing, I think this is real important for young people. And this is something that I found many of the alumni try to impart on young people is that if they're making these protests, if their campaigns are for them and themselves only to live better on campus, then their campaigns will never be successful. That they have to have campaigns that will allow for better opportunities, more access for people coming 10, 20, 50 years down the road. And so that's how you maintain a legacy of movement. That's the river that continues through all of this. And so the alumni say, we stop pushing, we stop pushing. And because of that, now you have to struggle. So what you have to do is make sure to maintain the, you know, the committed pressure and to think about somebody other than yourselves when you're making your movement. That was Stephen Bradley, professor of African-American studies at Loyola Marymount University and author of the book, Upending the Ivory Tower, Civil Rights, Black Power and the Ivy League. You'll find links in the show notes. That's it for this week's Darts and Letters. The producer this week is Ren Bangert. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio and I'm your lead producer and this week's fill-in host, Jay Coburn. The editor and usual host is Gordon Katick. Our research assistants are David Moscrop and Addie Susnick. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic design by Dakota Coop, with marketing by Ian Soudon. You can email the show, dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or tweet at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media, and we're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. This episode is also part of a wider project looking at neoliberal educational reforms, led by Professor Mark Spooner at the University of Regina. Professor Spooner provided research consulting on this episode. Plus, we're supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday. 